Hello and welcome to the podcast series on laboratories of differentiated integration in a post-Brexit Europe. This podcast series is brought to you by the Sean Monet Center of Excellence at the University of Agda in Norway. Throughout this series, we will explore different topics related to an increasingly dynamic European Union and bring in experts to share their insight with us. I'm your host, Johan Andersen, and I would like to welcome our two guests for today's episode. With us today, we have the privilege of having two very special guests joining in. Our first guest today is Dr. Tavo Kungler. He works as the deputy head of the Western Europe Division at the European External Action Service, the EEAS. His responsibilities include EU-Norway relations and European Economic Area Horizontal Coordination. From 2014 to 2018, he serves as head of political press and information section at the EU delegation to Iceland. And before the joining the EU institutions, he was a lecturer at the University of Tartu in Estonia and a research fellow at the University of Vienna and the University of Konstanz in Germany. Tavo Kungler has a PhD in public administration from the Technical University of Tallinn and his areas of expertise include the EU and EEA, the internal market policy and multi-level governance. And now I'd like to introduce our second guest, Professor Jarle Trondahl. He works as professor in public administration at the University in Agda and at the Arena Center for European Studies at Oslo University. From 2010 to 2015, he was an honorary professor at the Department of Political Science at Copenhagen University. And Trondahl is also a member of the Research Council at the European University Institute in Florence. During his career, he has published extensively on themes such as governance, organizational theory, political order and transformation, EU studies, and public administration. And finally, before giving the floor or the microphone to our guest, it's important to say that all statements made are made in a personal capacity and are the viewpoints of our guests and not their organizations. Um, so today's episode focuses on Norway and the EU. And the main topic is the relationship between Norway and the EU and whether this is an awkward partnership or model for EU integration. So let me start off by asking the question, what makes Norway and the EU such a compelling case? I'd like to hear Professor Jale Tondal first, and then I'll give the floor to, to Dr. Tavo Kunga. Well, it, it's a, of course a question whether it's a co compelling case at all. <laughs> for whom? But uh, I guess for, for a researcher, it could be seen as a compelling case in at least some few respects. Uh, one is, uh, as we will come back to, I guess, uh, on, the, on the studies of uh, differentiated relationships inside the and outside European Union, in which uh, Norway has uh, developed a relationship with the Union that is a different of a different character, and uh, we uh, that's interesting to study, mm -hmm. both what it is and the consequences of it. All right, and from a practitioner or bureaucratic viewpoint, what do you consider, uh, Dr. Tavo? 
Um, Professor Trondal already mentioned a very uh, uh, important uh, question, uh, compelling case from, from what angle? Because, of course, from, uh, from the perspective of uh, EU institutions, I mean, the EEA, is, is, it can be asked if the EEA is a kind of a model for, um, for a close integration of, of third countries which wish to be uh, associated to the EU single market. And, and you know, and we have seen indeed that the EA uh, uh, agreement has has used has been used as a sort of as a as a frame of reference or or you know starting point uh, in the discussions we had post uh, Brexit referendum, but also in, in in other contexts. So so I think it is also um, a very interesting case um, and 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 to, to be studied from from that uh, perspective. Thank you. All right, let me just uh, talk about the elephant in the room then. Uh, what is the EEA? And uh, can you give a, a general rundown of the organization for our listeners? So who would you like to respond? Well, who, who volunteers? <laughs> yeah. I, can, I can try. Yeah, just briefly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's briefly it, it could be seen as a, as a, a let's say, compromise uh, solution for a country such as Norway in making arrangements and um, being so so member of the EU in some respect but without mm. full membership okay. so it 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 uh, gives the country access to key parts of the of the union mm. but without uh, being uh, let's say uh, putting the form, formal political sovereignty at play mm. Uh, however, that's a, a huge discussion to what extent that happens mm. or that, if that is safeguarded in reality. But, uh, but it's a kind of compromise solution. It, was, uh, it has a story, historical reason for why it was developed as it, as it was mm. and uh, why, how it has developed over time because it, it is uh, developing a lot. So following up on, on the history, what came before the EEA? What was the solution before that? <laughs> Before the EA, it was a kind of it was uh, Norway joining EFTA, mm. uh, in which uh, there, there was a two-pillar Europe, where the, the so the model was that those who didn't want to be a member of the union uh, established a cooperation that was less or a looser in the EFTA side as a trade union, trade cooperation. Uh, however, most more and more of the EFTA countries wanted to join the EU, uh, and and did so. Uh, however, Norway didn't. So there was some EFTA part, uh, countries left behind in EFTA. And then the EEA agreement is a cooperation between EFTA countries okay. and then. So let me follow up with a question to Dr. Kungla. Um, one of the common criticisms or attacking points is that uh, the national sovereignty is a threat from an institute or a corporation like the EEA. Do you find any merits in that viewpoint that the participation in the EEA is at the cost of national sovereignty? Um, on on this point, I, I I would need to go back and and complement um, Professor Trondal's remarks because 
as as he said this is a very the EA is a very kind of unique and and, and special arrangement to um, associate third countries uh, with with the EU uh, very closely Norway takes fully part of a part in in the EU single market and uh, an important question is how this is done also i mean what kind of institutions have been set up it's a highly institutionalized form of cooperation between the EU and and Norway and and uh, Iceland and, and Liechtenstein the, the other two EAFTA countries. And um, I would say, uh, based on this uh, so-called two-pillar structure that has been established to, to manage the agreement, uh, formally speaking, the EAFTA countries, including Norway, have not um, transferred any legislative powers to EU institutions. So, um, and because constitutionally, they of course cannot accept uh, decisions uh, taken by by the EU directly. So, so uh, in other words, there is there has been a very a special uh, institutional setup uh, to uh, to cater for this uh, this this need uh, for, for of, or wish of these countries to be to be part of the, the single market mm -hmm. so so this this would be uh, i think one one element of uh, of of the response and and maybe more broadly speaking i mean also i mean the, the question is on on the on the eu side as well of course why why do countries uh, pool sovereignty and and i think uh, it is important to bear in mind that for for the challenges that we have nowadays you know uh, starting with of course the big things like climate change uh, but also in the field of uh, foreign policy and security energy i mean uh, countries simply need to work to together and countries need to manage their um, relations and and interdependencies with neighbors and and i think this is this is probably also an important uh, uh, challenge for norway and and explains maybe uh, the choices that Norway has made, which are, of course, entirely the choices made by, by Norway. So on that note, you've already mentioned that there's different levels of participation within the EU, with Norway making a case of having one foot outside, but through the EEA still participating in the cooperation. Can you briefly explain the concept of differentiated integration to our listeners? And I'll begin with uh, Professor Trondahl. Uh, so uh, this uh, this uh, term includes differentiation in integration. So if you start by integration, uh, there's different views of what integration is, but it's at least has to do with a process. And it has to do with process of different items, such as states, getting together. So, uh, and the term differentiate, differentiation then means that, or could be understood as those processes uh, being unequal. For example, it could be that certain states or certain institutions within states uh, participate to a less or more extent or change their way of cooperation, for example, over time. So they select, for example, different items in the shop, so to speak, in order to be part of more or less part in this process of integration. And uh, there's a, uh, there's, uh, the EU was, in a sense, established at least back in the days with a vision of, of unity, but within uh, the, that is the diversity of the countries involved. So it's uh, the whole fabric of, of the union is based on this idea of combining the element of integration and differentiation. So hence, hence it's not new, but we sometimes tend to think, think that way. And uh, when, when uh, events such as Brexit happens. Yes. 
And let me pose a question then for Dr. Kungler. Does differentiated integration lead to, or say allow for an A and B teams in terms of ambition where less ambitious countries can hang on for the rights? So to say, does differentiated integration mean that the less ambitious countries can still latch onto the framework or what is your opinion on this? Um, I think that uh, we really have to look at uh, the, the concrete uh, substance and form of this, uh, the, this, this cooperation that we have with, with the different third countries. And uh, speaking uh, about the EE agreement, this is, of course, uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't call it a, a kind of a la lacking ambition because if you look into, into uh, our cooperation and and uh, if you also take into account that this is a, a, a dynamic agreement, meaning that uh, that uh, the agreement is being constantly updated and and uh, I mean it's it's a very very ambitious uh, form of cooperation actually with uh, with Norway, so meaning that uh, for example when it comes to climate energy transition i mean some of the topics i, I already mentioned i mean norway is as is together with with the eu member states at at the very forefront of 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 uh, innovative and 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 uh, uh, new solutions so so in in these areas so so i think uh, there are much uh, much uh, um, more formats where where you you could say that maybe it's it's uh, you know lacking ambition but but the e agreement clearly is a very ambitious form of cooperation because i i would argue that the ea it's not only about the the, um, the single market i mean only the the four freedoms free movement of capital uh, goods services people but also the ea agreement uh, uh, enables really cooperation between the eu and norway in, in many other areas such as eu programs uh, for example horizon europe for in the next uh, uh, multi-annual financial framework i mean which where where we we can have uh, together very very ambitious projects and and within this framework uh, i would say that norway plays really a, a very active a proactive role in 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 many different areas so so it's uh, to me ea agreement is a very very um uh, ambitious form of uh, cooperation but but of course we can look at uh, make a differentiation differentiation i mean i think we will come back to this so we can also you know compare it with uh, uh, switzerland or or with uh, with the tca the trade and cooperation agreement the eu has concluded with uh, with the uk so there are different forms of um, of uh, of this uh, differentiated integration also for third countries mm. um I mean, first of all, the, the EA agreement provides a number of possibilities for uh, for Norway to <coughs> to shape uh, what we call uh, decision shaping, to shape the, the EU legislation and the decisions taken by the European Union. So we uh, Norwegian experts uh, can participate in various uh, various uh, expert groups that uh, that prepare EU legislation at a very early stage. Uh, which also, of course, helps later on downstream the process with the implementation of the legislation because they are already familiar with uh, with the kind of issues and 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 can flag already possible possible difficulties. Um, they they uh, also can I mean the EEFTA states, including Norway, can send uh, comments on on um, 
on very on on proposed pieces of EU legislation. So, for example, the most recent comment we had from the EEFTA side was on the revision of the Eurovignette directive, for example. And I can tell you that it's it's. Uh, I mean, we uh, in the EU different institutions really pay attention to these uh, different uh, opinions. Uh, since also, I mean, uh, these um, contributions by the EEFTA states they tend to be of a, uh, of a high quality and and you know interesting for the debate as well because having worked in the internal for the internal market and consumer uh, protection committee at the European Parliament, I I remember uh, the committee uh, investigating also these these uh, uh, opinions submitted by by the EFTA states and and I would say that also even though it's it's only decision shaping that say you are you are not sitting at the table and and taking these decisions with us formally speaking I would say that decision shaping provides a lot of opportunities for you to uh, yield influence because you also have you have a normative power also so you you have uh, you know expertise which which we uh, happily rely on and and and, and take uh, take into account and then also of course uh, norway provides uh, snes uh, seconded national experts to uh, eu institutions which uh, then you know come with their national expertise and can can contribute in various areas then and then afterwards take back this expertise to the norwegian um, administration um and uh, yeah i mean we we work really very very closely uh, together with with the norwegians um. yes and I'll, I'll pose the following up question now uh, so in the case of or delving in further into the norwegian case how is the opinion in the Norwegian public towards the EU? Is it positive or is it negative? Can you shed some light on the uh, public sentiment in, in Norway regarding the, the EU? Uh, yeah, I could uh, share some a few insights. Uh, the pulse is uh, over time uh, negative. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, that's one obvious uh, and clear pattern. And that has uh, that has been the recurrent uh, tendency uh, throughout since uh, the first uh, attempt to join the EU in 1972, when the first uh, referenda in Norway happened. The next uh, referenda was in 1994, with uh, just the same outcome, with 52% approximately no, and. After that, uh, the the no side has or has increased. Uh, on the other side, I would say neglect is another or uh, diffuse kind of uh, neglect of the union as, as a whole is also a kind of opinion that where people don't have so strong opinions on the EU as a whole. Mm. Potentially, a lack of knowledge. Uh, potentially, lack of problems in Norway. So, we, if you ask uh, ask the question, why is this? Like there's uh, just as in, in in Britain, there's a sent the periphery dimension to this in Norway, where the periphery tends periphery meaning the geographical periphery, but also the socioeconomic periphery tend to say don't like this integration process. Yeah. So building onto that, is there a constant state of pessimism, or do we see a difference in the different? government constellations that one side is more positive and the other side is more reserved is there a change in ideology 
having an influence then on the stance towards EU or both sides uh, of the two blocks skeptic towards the or say reserved towards the EU cooperation. That's the kind of the irony here. It doesn't matter much which party is in government, whether they are in, a, in favor or opposed to membership in the EU. When they are in government, they, uh, like, uh, let's say, they, administrate, they, they, they take care of and administrative, uh, administrate this uh, EEA agreement and the rest of the 100 agreements Norway have with the EU. I counted 101 agreements that is living at the moment. And all these are taken care of by the governments, even though there are parties in there that want to have a non-membership or a kind of trade agreement. So, so party ideology doesn't matter much when it comes to government positions, actually. So following up on that question, uh, let me just post a uh, say, general paradox that what I would frame as a paradox that you see a tendency where the Norwegian public is becoming uh, less favorable of the EU, uh, a bit more reserved, yet you see the legislative aspects uh, getting much more ambitious than before when it comes to adapting EU laws and regulations. We have seen an increase in more than 33%. Uh, do you see this as a paradox that one side, the, the public sentiment is getting less favorable, but at the same time, the administrative level and the, uh, the uh, bureaucratic side of it is getting much more favorable towards the ESO to opposing sides? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if it's I'm just yeah. responding. I, yeah, yeah, please. I can pose the question yes. to Dr. Kungler first and then, yeah. Um, um, overall, uh, of course, uh, I mean, from uh, from an EU point of view, it is uh, of course uh, important that uh, that uh, implementation. I mean, the EA uh, rules are implemented uh, by by Norway and by the EFTA states as they are implemented by EU member states because uh, it is important to. Uh, maintain this uh, uh, level playing field uh, and and the same same rules and conditions uh, for uh, for businesses uh, on both the EU uh, side but also uh, on the EFTA side including in Norway and of course it's in the end the the consumers and companies that benefit from this uh, improved implementation of of uh, EU EU legislation so um whether that is a, a, a paradox or or, or not, uh, it is difficult for me to to comment on 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 that. I mean, uh, of course, we notice also within the European Union. I mean, uh, when it comes to the single market, that uh, you know, the single market, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's at the very core of the European project, and it's it's it delivers really tangible benefits for for citizens for businesses. I think many of these benefits are being taken for granted, and and we only see, you know, when something happens now. When we had the, the due to the coronavirus, that uh, that you know the borders were closed and uh, and uh, different supply chains were interrupted. I mean, only then we see actually what we we have gained and, and what we can lose from uh, from not having uh, having these uh, these uh, rules and these. Um, 
uh, these advantages i mean that we get from the single market and and there um, i think it's also and i think Jarl, uh, i think professor trondal mentioned it um, i mean it's important for the, for the government to uh, to explain also the e agreement at home and 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 these benefits uh, in in norway i mean uh, we do that in in the member states as well i mean we we have to explain uh, the the benefits of of the single market and and raise awareness of these issues yes i i completely agree with you <clears throat> on this and uh, i think um so this seeming paradox i'm not sure if it's a paradox uh, at least this misfit between the the process of integration the level of uh, regulation and the popular support this disconnect so to speak between the two or even a negative correlation if you like the more the integration the less support uh could be easily answered i guess by the studies we have the one is as you said the lack of of knowledge among people this is a complex uh, a complex system and the legislative process is so hard to for people to uh, look into and understand and perhaps even to explain uh, so uh, people might be um, opposed due to the lack of oversight of this process the second is uh, the, uh, the perception of being a loser as a losing out on the integration process uh, which is perhaps more of a general feeling of losing out on the process of globalization and uh, so you get this uh, this division between those who are winning and those who are losing, at least how they perceive it. And from there you get uh, what is today called identity politics, which is more becoming more and more important for people uh, in, in this process where people's feeling becomes of identity towards integration versus the state versus the local communities becomes very important uh, in order for this uh, yeah, you know, at least in order to understand popular support or dissupport. Let me pose a bit of a provocative question, but would you consider that Norway's membership in the EEA has been a success? Uh, there's two sides to this viewpoint. First one is, of course, the, uh, the export, the import of political influence to partners and through this kind of in-between participation, that would suggest, yes, it's it's a success. But then you mentioned identity politics and, and the other side that there's also a side arguing that, well, they are losing influence in the sense of national sovereignty, uh, sovereignty in brackets, of course, and paying 50% of a, a, an EU membership in order to access the inner markets uh, I'll ask both of you, and we can start with Professor Trondal, and then we'll go on to Dr. Kunda. So, so has the Nor Norwegian membership in the EEA been a success, in your opinion? Uh, well, that's a, a, a too hard question to answer. It's also politically latent, so I would uh, I would hesitate to. But of course, it depends on who answers. Uh, so in Norway, then you would get, uh, as in most countries, you would get different uh, responses to that, based on their views. Secondly, it depends compared to what, uh, and if you, if you so success uh, compare as a uh, compared to a full non full full outside the ship, if you like, or a full membership, that's also something to take into consideration. I think in responding to it, but if if I should try 
I think uh, at least there's a, there is some kind of correlation between uh, uh, the level of integration of Norway during these years and the level of, of welfare and economic progress during these years. Whether it's a causation or if a pure correlation, well, that is up to debate, I guess, also among economists. But uh, that, that's, that's one, I think, is easier to see the benefits in that respect. When it comes to the downside, it might be for democracy, in which, uh, as you said in the beginning, the level of influence is uh, something that uh, uh, is uh, lagging behind, at least, in this uh, way of organizing a relationship between a state and the union. Because this kind of is membership without participation, at least participation without uh, real um, decision-making rights, so to speak, which is a choice mm. by the Norway Norwegian government based on a uh, referendum. Mm. Yes, Dr. Kungner. Uh, I would I would continue in in the same vein. Uh, um, I mean, looking at uh, first, of course, at the um, economic side of it. Uh, I mean, it it it's seems quite clear that the EEA has has delivered. I mean, uh, the, the, it is of course difficult to quantify this uh, this impact, uh, um, but uh, there have been attempts, and and uh, there is a fairly recent, well, from 2019, a study done by the Bertelsmann Stiftung, which, uh, which uh, concluded that uh, the economic benefits of the single market amount to uh, 9.2 billion euros per annum for Norway. So, um, so it's, of course, uh, you can, you, can uh, you know, question whether the methodology of the study is sound, etc. But at least uh, I think uh, we can sort of agree that it has it has resulted in in clear economic benefits for for Norway and and I think also for for the EU and especially of course uh, all the three EAFTA countries they are uh, very they have very competitive economies and and they 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 clearly benefit from uh, from being part of the of the EU single market. Yes. Could I, could I just in, intervene as well? Uh, and I fully agree with what, what uh, has been said. I just wanted to uh, to raise uh, one of the dilemmas that has been uh, hotly discussed, uh, particularly among the lawyers in Norway. Uh, I'm a political scientist, so I'm a bit outside this, but I've, I've observed that is the idea of pooling of authority to, uh, for Norway to the EU. Uh, and it, uh, it has happened bit by bit let's say we have a cri uh, when crisis hits solutions are made authority are delegated and that's often goes under the under the limit of the of the constitutional radar the question is when this accumulates then it's, uh, it's uh, the discussion has been the well this is far above this limitation as a, in some so uh, uh, and, and then the uh, different legal uh, uh, yeah, rules in the constitution should apply that as, which gives more uh, restrictions on this pooling process. So that has been a, a, a dilemma in, uh, over time then, yes. when, when you have an EA agreement that accumulates. So we're approaching our final segment now in the podcast, and here we'll look a bit towards the future. Uh, so following Brexit, we have seen an increasingly ambitious EU, but we've also seen popular movements arguing in favor of uh, being more committed to the to the European membership, uh, both in 
yeah, I think most European countries, uh, or most countries participating in the EU have seen this wave of pro-EU parties, uh, especially following the, the Brexit. So let me ask a, a bit more of an open question. Do you see a push for change in the membership? This is in the Norwegian case, from the Norwegian public, from the Norwegian politicians, and from the EU perhaps, do you see the future changing that they will say, we'll move more towards a streamlined membership rather than having these different levels? And likewise, what, is, what do you believe is the popular sentiment is it more EU, less, or somewhere in between, like what we see now? I, it's it's at lo at least not more. Uh, it's the agrarian party now, which is gaining in support towards the election in October, and they have uh, a clear uh, message. They want a, a, a renegotiation of the EEA agreement. Uh, I, I will not talk on behalf of the EU, but I would assume that's not very popular. I think it's a very smart move either from Norway, having Brexit in mind, how difficult it is to renegotiate political order. It's between, it's, this is far beyond renegotiating a certain one, one treaty only. It's, it's, a, it's an integrated political order. It's a judicial order. It's so heavily integrated in a federal sense. So it's so difficult. So uh, I think this is more of... Uh, Romantic ideas in certain, uh, in, that's, uh, in the left side of Norwegian politics, then it's a reality. And I, I'm, I assume that if, if they come to government, they wouldn't pursue it. No. As I said, party politics is kind of downplayed uh, in, in, in governments, at least when it comes to the EEA agreement, they tend to stay with it. That's more likely, I guess. So, building on to that, uh, Dr. Kungle, can you share some insights into the negotiation and the more practical part of, on the, the other side of this. So not the political uh, side, but can you share some insight? What does it mean to negotiate a deal in the scope of, say, Brexit, which is a huge feature? Is it as easy as just having a vote or is there more to it than that? Um, first, uh, I would uh, maybe come back to the uh, to the question you you asked uh, at at the outset i mean just to make uh, make it uh, clear that uh, the eu of course does not push any country to join the eu so it's up, up entirely up to the countries it's it's their choice whether they they want to take this path uh, of uh, towards eu membership or 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 not um now uh, the eea agreement in particular uh, is uh, is a, is a very I mean, I think it's a very privileged partnership that the EU has, has offered to the three EAFTA countries. Mm, we have already uh, mentioned or, or discussed uh, the, the main features of, of this agreement. Um, it is very important uh, that this agreement is seen by the EU as a, as a very, you know, the, the over, our overall political assessment of the agreement of, and of its functioning is positive. And we refer to it, as I said at the outset, as a model. Uh, as a model because it, it, works, it works well and uh, because also it, uh, it uh, enables uh, to preserve the integrity of the single market. So uh, we, what we don't want to see is a, is a kind of a pick and choose uh, approach, and and um, and and therefore, 
I think it's of course uh, again I mean uh, entirely up to Norway to to you know to decide on on how it uh, wants to conduct its relationship with the European Union in the future but I think uh, I think it's uh, it's uh, yeah illusionary to think that uh, that the kind of uh, more a la carte uh, uh, um, uh, let's say integration would would be uh, easy or or, or uh, to achieve. Also in terms of the process and and procedure. I mean, we we have all seen the the negotiations following the UK withdrawal. Uh, we see now what is happening with um, with Switzerland uh, in relation to the institutional framework agreement. Uh, so there it is also uncertain. But uh, uh, the reason uh, why we have we had negotiated uh, with Switzerland is uh, IFA or the institutional framework agreement is precisely because uh, we needed uh, a better uh, framework and, and, and a more holistic framework uh, providing uh, legal certainty for our companies, uh, providing uh, um, uh, effective dispute resolution. Yeah, so following up on that, um, if we look at the periphery of the EU, we have certain countries who are positioning themselves into either becoming members or have shown interest into it. One argument is the when it comes to differentiated integration are the wishes from the countries themselves, what they feel, to what extent they feel they can participate. But can you see a situation where the EU will be using differentiated integration as a way to push their own uh, agenda through? So allowing for certain parts of cooperation on, on their behalf, while excluding from our, say, the Schengen, in the case of, say, the uh, we have uh, Ukraine and, of course, Balkan and the former Yugoslavian uh, countries that are showing interest in joining. Could you see that as a position where the EU, say, will dictate the rules of the game, so to say, uh, putting forward that they can participate in one side or one aspect of the uh, membership while leaving them out on other? I guess perhaps uh, Dr. Kungla would be more <laughs> equipped to respond to that one on behalf of the EU. Uh, I will respond on my personal yeah. or, or your personal uh, so, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, uh, well the only thing I can say uh, I mean uh, looking at uh, at all the, the or different countries uh, you you mentioned uh, of course the starting point is uh, I mean the what what also what do these countries uh, aim at and 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 uh, and uh, in what situation they are in. I mean, what, what is the, the context that we are talking about? Because, uh, of course, taking the, the UK, uh, UK had certain red lines, uh, and which is why, I mean, uh, after the, the decision was taken to leave the EU, we had to negotiate uh, a kind of uh, this uh, TCA or trade and cooperation agreement, which, for example, does not provide for the free movement of uh, persons, it does not provide for the free movement of services. It, 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 in the end, I mean, it, it, it provides for zero tariffs, zero quotas, but there are a number of customs formalities and uh, all kinds of checks related to the uh, rules of origin. Um, so, in the end, uh, I mean, uh, there are many more obstacles for uh, for. Um, 
for goods and, and also for people to, to move and, and, and for, for the trade. I, I, I don't have any specific uh, comments on this, I guess. Uh, uh, looking at, uh, uh, but only that, uh, of course, differentiated integration would at any time be a, a possible uh, tool uh, for, for at least for certain institutions, perhaps for countries in order to engage with the EU. But sometimes we we only talk about countries and the EU, but they are all, uh, all countries are part, have a lot of institutions involved, mm. which can engage differenti at different levels. Uh, agencies and ministries, expert groups, networks. So there's a lot going beyond the surface here that is also uh, highly differentiated. So, and that might be a possibility for countries wanted to get join in which certain institutions or networks or expert groups can participate, even though the country is not as a, as a country per se um, becoming a member, perhaps. Okay, um, so do you find that it's a way of, say, circumventing either the popular support or resistance? Oh, yeah, in the sense that there's a lot going under the radar. That happens. That's, that's, that's not new to <laughs> any of this. And it's, it's, it's quite common. It's, it's a common way of, for example, in preparing uh, uh, joint standards. You see it in the Nordic countries that uh, agencies go together to go to discuss, understand, percept, uh, perceive, for example, EU rules, but also common threats or if it's uh, climate change and they want to join forces in order to have a joint response, uh, this expert tends to meet and uh, and do that uh, do that regularly at a collegial level, let's say. All right, let me pose the final question then for, for today's podcast. Um, do you find that there are any real alternatives to being in the EEA for Norway? And I'll start with uh, Dr. Humle. Um, I think uh, what is important that Norway, of course, as a, as a close neighbor, I mean, uh, geographically and and of the EU or EU member states and and uh, due to the economic trade links and and people to people links all kinds of different links it has with the EU member states uh, needs to manage uh, this this uh, relationship with the, with the member states of the European Union and with the, with the neighbors and and um, I think uh, um, I think it's it's it it needs uh, uh, some kind of contractual relationship, obviously, with with the EU in order to do that. And uh, and uh, as I said before, I think the the EA agreement has uh, has served uh, at least from from an EU point of view, it it has served uh, our in our common interests very well. So it is. Uh, it is difficult to, uh, and and it has been an ambitious ambitious project as well. So, uh, um, I I I I don't I wouldn't comment on on. Uh, of course, there are there are always always alternatives, but uh, this is uh, this is for Norway to 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 decide, and and for the Norwegian people. Yes, and Professor Tonda. Thank you. And uh, given that. Uh, that the ultimate question of the decision is left to citizens through referenda. That's a decision made in Norway, and that is a sticky decision that needs to be taken every time. I think the situation of uh, of uh, on the opinions of Norwegians is not likely to change in the short term. But uh, at least if, if there's a re real alternatives in the short term, 
and given all the constraints involved? No. But in the longer term, I cannot answer. Yes, uh, Dr. Kungla and Professor Trondal, I would like to thank you for participating in today's episode and sharing your insights. Um, and I would also like to thank you for listening in on this podcast episode. I hope that this has been an informative experience. This podcast series has been realized with the support and funding from the University of Agda and the European Erasmus Plus program. Thank you. Thank you.